0: section 29 of the lives of the queens of england volume eight by agnes and elizabeth Strickland. this librivox recording is in the public domain catherine of braganza chapter three part one the arrival of the king's nephew william prince of orange caused more than ordinary festivities in the court in the autumn of 1677 queen Catherine was present at the marriage of that prince with the princess mary eldest daughter of the duke of york which was celebrated at whitehall on the fourth of november the queen's birthday was kept that year on the fifteenth instead of the twenty-fifth of that month because the departure of the newly wedded pair was appointed for the twenty-first a very splendid ball was given on that occasion both on account of her majesty's anniversary commemoration and in honour of the recent nuptials of the royal cousins they both danced but the ill-humour and ungracious deportment of the bridegroom and the evident distress of the youthful bride cast an unwonted gloom over the entertainment Catherine, who had known the princess mary almost from the day of her birth and regarded her with the affection of an aunt felt great compassion for her when she came bathed in tears to take her leave previously to her embarkation for holland the sight of her grief doubtless recalled to the queen's mind her own feelings on bidding a long adieu to her own country and friends, and she reminded the weeping bride that such was the lot of royalty and that she had herself experienced a similar trial when she came to England, where she was a stranger to everyone and had not even seen the king, her husband. Mary, who thought no sorrow like her sorrow, petulantly replied, "'But, madam, you came into England, and I am leaving England.' catherine of braganza had little reason to rejoice in the destiny that had conducted her to this country for never had any queen with the exception of anne of cleves been treated more injuriously both by the sovereign and his ministers her case was at this period worse than it had ever been before for the king had for the last five years wholly withdrawn himself from her company so that they rarely met except in public and had ceased to occupy the same apartment the cause of this virtual separation may doubtless be traced to the increasing infatuation of the king for the duchess of portsmouth and the machinations of shaftesbury who although he had been unable to obtain charles's sanction for a parliamentary divorce was pertinacious in his determination to effect the ruin of the queen he had injured catherine too deeply to allow her to remain in peaceful possession of the name of queen consort and the few privileges she retained His hatred of the Duke of York was a still more active principle, and his desire of depriving that prince of the succession to the crown urged him into incessant attempts either to dissolve or invalidate the marriage of the king with the childless Catherine. Relying on Charles's parental fondness for his illegitimate offspring, which on many occasions betrayed him into the inconsistent acts of folly, he one day had the audacity to tell his majesty, that if he would but say he had been married to the mother of the Duke of Monmouth, he would find those that would swear it. The last lingering spark of honor, and all the pride of Charles's nature, revolted at the idea, not only of being considered the husband of so abandoned a woman as Lucy Walters, but of avowing himself as an unprincipled bigamist. Nay, suborning false witness to establish him as such, by a series of perjuries for the purpose of depriving his brother of his rightful place in the regal succession invalidating his own marriage with his lawful wife and imposing a surreptitious heir on his people i would rather see james hanged up at tyburn than entertain such a thought was his indignant reply to the insulting proposal charles proved his sincerity by taking the earliest opportunity of ridding himself of his subtle tempter in this he acted on the advice of holy writ resist the devil and he will flee from you but it was not in his power to fight manfully against evil his own paths were crooked and of course those persons who had once been in his councils became the most dangerous of his enemies shaftesbury who on account of his frequent changes of party bore the nickname of my lord shaftesbury was speedily transformed by his loss of office from the master fiend of the cabinet into the master fiend of the opposition he was a man alike devoid of honour and religion his ruling passions were ambition and revenge little doubt now exists that the bugbear called the popish plot was got up by his emissaries for the purpose of effecting the destruction of the queen and the duke of york he having vainly labored for nearly ten years to annul the marriage of the one and to rob the other of his rightful place in the succession the details of this complicated tissue of iniquity would occupy a folio and can only be briefly sketched the infamy of the characters of titus oates bedloe and in fact of every person who came forward in the shape of informers and witnesses to swear away the lives of a great number of innocent victims has been acknowledged by every historian of integrity and stands forth so palpably in the state trials and journals of the house of lords that it is needless to dwell on them further than as connected with the audacious attempts to fix the charges of high treason and murder on queen katharine and her servants on the thirteenth of august sixteen seventy eight charles the second was about to take a walk in the park when a person of the name of kirby stepped forward and begged his majesty not to separate from the company as his life was in danger charles being a stranger to personal fear took no notice of this warning he had however some personal knowledge of kirby who had been employed to work in his laboratory for among his various pursuits charles the second had a taste for experimental chemistry kirby was a ruined speculator of plausible manners engaged with oats and tong titus Oates was the son of an anabaptist weaver and preacher but on the restoration was ordained a minister of the church of england from which he was expelled for his crimes he took refuge in the church of rome and studied at valladolid his misdoings caused his expulsion from that college but on professions of great repentance he was admitted into the seminary of saint omer whence he was however finally driven with disgrace for his bad conduct he returned to england and applied for relief to one of his old companions dr tong the rector of st michael wood street the editor of a quarterly polemic periodical tong who had been accustomed to appeal by many marvellous tales of blood and terror to the passions of the vulgar found oates a valuable ally for his powers of invention were singular and he had acquired a knowledge of conventual habits and many other technicalities connected with the romish church which gave a tone of reality to his fictions while at st omer oates had discovered that a private meeting of the jesuits was held in london in april this was the triennial convocation of the order but with the aid of tong he on this slight foundation built a story of a secret meeting of the roman catholics at which a conspiracy was organized for the murder of the king a second conflagration of london and the destruction of the protestant religion tong having written and prepared a narrative setting this forth in a business-like form directed kirby to accost the king as related and refer his majesty to him for further information in the evening he obtained an audience and presented his narrative charles regarded it as a fabrication and being mightily bored with its details to save himself from further trouble referred the matter to the lord treasurer danby and went off the next day to windsor to hold his court for the first time since the new alterations and improvements to the castle being impatient to witness the effect of the fresco paintings of vario and the wood carvings of grinley gibbon with which it was decorated danby was at that time under the apprehension of being impeached of high treason at the approaching meeting of parliament for his ministerial conduct and being well aware that his proceedings would not bear the stern investigation of the leaders of the opposition, he was eager to divert the attention of the house to some other object of attack than his own Piccadilios. Nothing could be more pat to his purpose than the popular bugbear of a popish plot, certain as it was to influence vulgar prejudice against the Duke of York, of whom he was a concealed foe. Accordingly, with all the selfish cunning of his nature, he made the most wild tales of the informers, and insisted on their importance with a vehemence that excited the laughter of the king, but when he proposed to lay the matter before the council, Charles hastily exclaimed, No, not even before my brother. It would only create alarm, and may perhaps put the design of murdering me into the head of some individual who would not otherwise have thought of it. Oates did not intend the matter to drop thus. He took means to compel public attention to his pretended discoveries by going to a city magistrate, Sir Edmundbury Godfrey, and making a deposition on oath of the particulars which the king had received so coolly, and added a list of persons whom he denounced as conspirators. Among the rest was a person of the name of Coleman, lately secretary to the Duchess of York, Sir Edmundbury Godfrey was Coleman's friend, and kindly wrote to give him warning of what was in agitation against him, a proceeding not very likely to incur the ill will of the Roman Catholics. Coleman told the Duke, who immediately perceived that some deep-laid scheme was in agitation against him, and urged the king to investigate the matter to the bottom. Oates was now summoned before the council, who repeated the depositions he had made before Godfrey, with the addition that the Jesuits were determined to kill not only the king, but the Duke of York, if he should prove unwilling to join the plot, and that they had received from Pere Lachet, the French king's confessor, a donation of 10,000 pounds, and from de Corduba, the provincial of New Castile, the promise of a similar sum, to be expended on this undertaking the duke of york pronounced the whole to be an imprudent and absurd fabrication the king desired oaths to describe the person of don john of austria with whom he pretended to have conferred at madrid he replied that he was a tall spare and swarthy man the royal brothers looked at each other and smiled for both were acquainted with don john and knew him to be a little fat fair man with blue eyes charles asked him next where he saw La Chaise pay down the ten thousand pounds. In the house of the Jesuits, close to the Louvre, replied Oates, forgetting the intimate acquaintance of the monarch with the localities of Paris and its palaces. Man, exclaimed the king, the Jesuits have no house within a mile of the Louvre. Oates had now committed himself sufficiently to destroy his own credit in any court of justice, but the guilty practices of Coleman, who had been for years a secret spy and pensioner of France, were brought to light by his arrest and the investigation of his papers. Coleman was actually in correspondence with La Chaise, from whom a letter was found, offering for his master to furnish him with twenty thousand pounds, to be employed by him and his friends, for the service of France and the interests of the Roman Church while coleman was thus receiving the wages of france he had been discharged from the service of the duchess of york for writing seditious letters and newspapers attacking the jesuits and the french for all which he was highly caressed by the whigs who considered him as one of their party he appears to have been one of those persons of whom there were too many at that time who made a trade of agitation and sold himself to all parties in turn He was tried, convicted, and executed for his misdemeanors on the 3rd of December following. In the meantime, the king chose to go to Newmarket and pursue his pleasures there, in spite of the entreaties of his brother and every person of common sense, for him to remain at Whitehall, and sift the matter thoroughly to the bottom before Parliament met. Danby persuaded the indolent Sardanapalus, his master, to leave it to his management, and go recreate himself with the autumnal sports. Charles went and during his absence sir edmundbury godfrey the magistrate before whom oates had made his depositions left his house one morning and his body was found after five days in a dry ditch on primrose hill transfixed with his own sword the duke of york Little foreseeing that this circumstance was hereafter to form the foundation of a most absurd accusation against himself, gives the following brief outline of the occurrence, in a letter to his son-in-law, the Prince of Orange, on the subject of the plot. There is another thing happened, which is, that a justice of peace, one Sir Edmundbury Godfrey, was missing some days, suspected by several circumstances, very probable ones, to design the making himself away yesterday his body was found in a by-place in the fields some two or three miles off with his own sword run through him this makes a great noise and is laid on the catholics also but without any reason for it for he was known to be far from an enemy to them the death of sir Edmundbury godfrey has generally been attributed to his own act from constitutional and hereditary melancholy his father having destroyed himself during a fit of mental despondency but considering the use that was made of it by the incendiaries engaged in the fabrication of the popish plot that it was the hinge on which the whole of their machinery turned there is every reason to believe that the murder was perpetrated by themselves for the purpose of charging it upon those who were marked out for their victims There is a passage in the notebook of an eminent civilian, the Lord Keeper North, who was an acute observer of the proceedings of Oates and his supporters, which leaves no doubt as to his opinion of the matter. Godfrey's murder, says he, they shall contrive as a stratagem of mischief. The funeral of the unfortunate magistrate was conducted more like a theatrical pageant than a Christian rite nothing was omitted that could create tragic excitement and kindle the indignation of the populace against his alleged murderers the roman catholics no one pausing to inquire what persons of that persuasion had to gain by so useless a crime a vague suspicion of which drew upon them one of those terrible outbursts of public fury such as in former ages was occasionally excited against the jews when a pretense was required to plunder and annoy them the absurd statements of oates were received with eager credulity by all ranks and those who presumed to question them were regarded in the light of accomplices the business of life was interrupted by confusion panic clamour and dreadful rumours the king offered a reward of five hundred pounds for the discovery of the murderer of godfrey and notwithstanding his own conviction that the whole was a monstrous fabrication had not the moral courage to stem the torrent of popular delusion at the opening of the session of parliament he called the attention of the house to the alleged popish plot danby had now gained his point his impeachment was averted by the astute policy with which he had substituted this new and marvellous affair for the discussion of parliament it was seized on with avidity Oates was sent for his impudent falsehoods were listened to and things possible and impossible received as gospel the hired tools of the king of france on the one hand were there rejoicing in the destruction which they had paid for fomenting and the creatures of the prince of orange on the other working to effect the exclusion of the duke of york by means of the no popery cry that was now so successfully ringing from one end of england to the other danby now fancied that he should weather out the storm and that by crying out against popery he should pass for a pillar of the church and ward off the blow which he foresaw was falling on his shoulders but my lord shaftesbury who soon found out his drifts, said let the treasurer cry as loud as he pleases against popery and think to put himself at the head of the plot i cry a note louder and soon take his place Shaftesbury had hitherto been felt, but not seen in the business, his proceedings resembling those of the spider that lurks perdu in some dark chink of the wall, over which she has stealthily woven her web, and never permits herself to be visible till she can dart on her prey. Before Parliament had sat a week, he got a committee appointed for the investigation of the plot, and made himself the directing power by which everything was managed. Oates was then rewarded with a pension of 1,200 pounds a year for his information and encouraged to denounce every Catholic peer whose abilities or influence would be likely to oppose his designs against the Queen and the Duke of York as concerned in the plot. It was in consequence of these denunciations that all Roman Catholic peers were deprived of their seats in Parliament the first week in november saw a new actor in the farce now fast progressing to a tragedy of the most extensive and bloody character an oft convicted and punished felon of the name of bedloe newly discharged from newgate tempted by the idea of obtaining the reward of five hundred pounds offered by the royal proclamation for the discovery of the murderers of sir edmundbury godfrey swore That the murder was committed by the Queen's Popish servants at Somerset House, that he was stifled between two pillows by the Jesuits, Walsh and Fever, with the aid of Lord Bellassi's gentlemen and one of the waiters in the Queen's chapel. He added, That he saw the body there laying on the Queen's back stairs, that it lay there two days, and he was offered two thousand guineas to assist in removing it, and that at last it was removed at nine o'clock on Monday night by some of the Queen's people. Four days afterwards, he deposed that in the beginning of October, he was offered four thousand pounds to commit a murder that Godfrey was inveigled into the court at Somerset House about five o'clock in the afternoon when the murder was committed, not as he had first sworn by stifling him with pillows, but by strangling with a linen cravat. The king was indignant at these impudent statements, which were aimed against the queen's life as she was then residing at Somerset House, but luckily he was himself a witness of her innocence and of the falsehood of the tale as he visited her majesty that day and was with her at the very hour named by the perjurer as that when the murder was perpetrated and which must have been instantly discovered because a company of foot-guards were drawn out and sentinels placed at every door bedloe pointed out the room to the duke of monmouth where he pretended the corpse of the murdered man was carried and that he saw standing round it the four murderers and atkins clerk to mr pepys of the admiralty but this was as it happened the waiting-room appropriated to the use of the queen's footmen who were there in waiting all day long and all her majesty's meals were brought through by no other way yet even these self-evident contradictions did not convince the public of the falsehood and wickedness of the impostor grave legislators listened with apparent credulity to tales of invading armies of pilgrims and friars coming over from spain to cut all protestant throats and even armies of papists underground that were already under arms to break forth at the proper moment and kill every one who would not conform to their dogmas it was now evident that the death of Sir Edmundbury Godfrey was to be charged upon the queen, though the first attack was made on her priests and servants. Her birthday was, however, celebrated with more than ordinary splendor this year. I never saw the court more brave, says Evelyn, nor the nation in more apprehension and consternation. The jails were crowded with prisoners, who were arrested on the informations of Oates as accomplices in the plot, A feverish excitement pervaded all ranks of the people in the expectation of fresh discoveries and their thirst for the marvelous was duly fed by pamphlets and announcements in the newspapers, calculated to increase the delusion and inflame the national mania. The supporters of Oates, who were chiefly to be found among the Republican Party, held councils for carrying on their designs at the King's Head in Fleet Street and other places. They also had their dark cobbles and associations in city and country, where they invented news and libels, and with that success, that in twenty-four hours they could entirely possess the city with what reports they pleased, and in less than a week spread them over the kingdom. At this perilous crisis, when the lives of the Queen, the Duke of York, and all their servants hung on the same fragile thread, which the next breath might sever, a coolness arose between them on the following grounds the king had been compelled to issue a proclamation for banishing priests on which it was moved in council that those attached to the household of the duchess of york might be accepted as well as those belonging to the queen this was negative it being too dangerous to make such an exception but it was suggested that those ecclesiastics might be added to her majesty's list catharine, who knew she had more priests of her own than was at all safe at that juncture refused to sanction this subterfuge although both the king and duke requested her to consent to the arrangement the duke and duchess were offended at her non-compliance but she acted with far greater friendship in refusing to aid them in evading the mandate published in the king's proclamation than if she had obliged them by a compliance which would doubtless have involved both herself and the duchess in the most imminent danger surrounded as catherine was at this time by spies and bloodhounds one false or even doubtful step would have thrown her into their toils, but the truthfulness and simplicity of her character was her best defense against their malice. She had no guilt to conceal, and by walking in the broad light of day, she avoided all cause of suspicion, so that, when she was charged with practicing against the life of her royal husband, there was a witness in her favor, in the heart of every honest man who knew her, that attested her innocence. Oates grew so presumptuous, says Evelyn, as to accuse the queen of a design to poison the king which certainly that pious and virtuous lady abhorred the thoughts of and oates's circumstances made it utterly unlikely in my opinion he probably thought to gratify some who would have been glad his majesty should have married a fruitful lady however the king was too kind a husband to let any of these make impression on him Evelyn, when he made this observation in his private diary, was probably unconscious of the manner in which his opinion was verified by the following fact. Dr. Tong, on the 23rd of October, sent one of his confederates, Mrs. Elliot, the wife of a gambling gentleman of the King's bedchamber, to solicit a private audience for oats on the grounds. That he wished to communicate some important secret information against the Queen, tending to implicate her in the plot perceiving that this intimation was received by the king with tokens of impatience and displeasure she had the boldness to tell him that she thought his majesty would have been glad to have parted with the queen on any terms i will never suffer an innocent lady to be oppressed was charles's indignant reply to the base emissary of those who presuming on his ill-conduct as a husband had dared to insult him with a proposal of assisting in a conspiracy against the life of his ill-treated consort. Catherine's unpopular religion, her numerous ecclesiastical establishment, her chapels at St. James's and Somerset House, and her endeavors to reserve all the preferments in her own household for persons of her own faith, had always been displeasing to the people, and therefore any attack on her, it was supposed, would expose her to their fury at a moment, when their passions and prejudices had been excited to a degree of blind ferocity by the marvellous fictions of the originators of the plot the avowed devotion of the duke of york to the tenets of the church of rome had alarmed the timorous and offended the bold of the reformed faith Those who venerated his father as a martyr were disposed to look upon him as an apostate, and to consider that the evil communications of the pope's queen had been the cause of seducing him from his former attachment to the Church of England. In Portugal, the whole credit of his conversion was given to Catherine of Braganza, and it is to this day emblazoned as one of her good deeds in the chronicles of that country. In such different lights do national feelings and strong prejudices inculcated by education, teach persons to look upon the same thing. Catherine had, however, nothing to do with the change in the Duke of York's creed. She never possessed the slightest influence over his mind, neither does it appear that there was any increase of friendship between her and him in consequence of his Catholicism. She would not relinquish her chapel at St. James's palace to his young Duchess, Mary of Modena, and she passionately resented the attentions which a mistaken and unworthy policy induced the duke to allow his innocent consort to pay to the duchess of portsmouth yet the faction that was bent on excluding that prince from the regal succession treated the queen as if her want of children were a crime on her part and had been actually contrived between her and clarendon to secure the throne to the duke of york and his progeny the secluded manner in which katharine had been living apart from the king in her dower palace at somerset house while the duchess of portsmouth was queening it at whitehall and her apparently neglected and defenceless condition had encouraged oates and bedloe to mark her out as an easy victim on the supposition that charles would be glad of an opportunity of playing henry the and would give her up to the vengeance of that party whose malice she had excited by refusing to become their tool in political agitation. Oaths now deposed on oath before the king and council, that in the preceding july he saw a letter in which it was affirmed by Sir George Wakeman, the queen's catholic physician, that her majesty had been brought to give her assent to the murder of the king, that subsequently one Sir Richard or Sir Robert of Somerset House evidently pointing at Sir Richard Bellings, the Queen's secretary, came with a message from Her Majesty for certain Jesuits to attend her, with whom, one day in August, he went to Somerset House for no other purpose as it should appear than to be made an unnecessary witness of their high and horrible designs. They went into Her Majesty's closet, leaving him in the antechamber, the door of which these clever plotters were so obliging as to leave ajar in order to enable him to hear the discourse, which, he pretended, passed between them and the queen. He said, he heard a female voice exclaim, I will no longer suffer such indignities to my bed, I am content to join in procuring his death and the propagation of the Catholic faith, and that, she would assist Sir George Wakeman in poisoning the king. He added, that when the jesuits came out he requested to see the queen and had as he believed a gracious smile of her majesty and while he was within he heard the queen ask father harcourt whether he had received the last ten thousand pounds and as far as he could judge it was the same voice which he had heard when he was in the ante room, and he saw no other woman there but the queen charles who knew that every tittle of this tale was false insisted on his describing the room and antechamber where he pretended he had overheard the queen hold this discourse with the priests oates who was not acquainted with the private apartments of her majesty in somerset house merely described one of the public reception rooms those who knew the relative situation of the queen's closet and privy chamber were aware that it was impossible for him to have heard anything the queen had spoken there unless she had exerted the utmost power of her lungs to make her treasons audible to the whole palace or to use burnet's elegant phraseology had strained for it for the queen says he was a low-voiced woman a point in her favour as contributing to exonerate her from this murderous aspersion and also as being a feminine charm commended by shakespeare as an excellent thing in woman the king considered that oates had entirely committed himself by this local blunder but then came bedloe to confirm the slander by swearing that he too had been witness of a conference between the queen and two french priests in the presence of lord bellicis coleman and some jesuits in the gallery of her chapel at Somerset house, while he stood below, he was informed by Coleman that at this conference the project of murdering the king was first propounded to the queen, and that at the first mention of it she burst into tears, but that her objections had been overcome by the arguments of the french jesuits, and she had reluctantly signified her consent. He was asked why he had not disclosed such a perilous matter in conjunction with his previous information touching the murder of sir e godfrey to which he coolly replied it had escaped his memory in pursuance of his determined attack on the life of the queen oates proceeded to depose that at first ten thousand pounds was offered to sir george wakeman in his presence to bribe him to the murder of the king which he refused saying it was too little for so great a work Then 5,000 pounds more was offered and accepted, and he signed a receipt to father Harcourt for 5,000 pounds paid in advance. It was pretended that Wakeman was to prepare the poison and Catherine to administer it to the king. This murderous calumny on the innocent queen is thus indignantly noticed by Dryden in his famous political poem, Absalom and Achitophel*, in which she is designated by the name of Michael such was the charge on pious michael brought michael that ne'er was cruel e'en in thought the best of queens the most obedient wife impeached of cursed designs on david's life his life the theme of her eternal prayer tis scarce so much his guardian angel's care not summer mourns but mildness can disclose the herman lily and the sharon rose neglecting each vain pomp of her majesty transported michael feeds her thoughts on high she lives with angels, and as angels do, quits heaven sometimes, to bless the world below. Where, cherished by her bounty's plenteous spring, reviving widows smile and orphans sing. End of section 29